We'll begin in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you can take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, in a, in a soon-to-be-released book by a psychologist named Dr. Dr. Robin Dunbar, he describes our friendships, the book's entitled Friends, and he describes our friendships as these concentric circles, so an inner circle layered by another by another, ever-widening concentric circles. And so he begins with that tiniest of circle. If you are married, this would be you and your spouse. Each concentric circle beyond that, adding more people and less intimacy. Uh, each layer, uh, he, they, the way they've charted this out is to say that in, on average, the average person has sort of five sort of very close best friends, the people you call when you need a shoulder to cry on, that kind of thing. And then the next circle out, 15, the next 50, uh, when you're having a big party, a celebration, you need to invite the 50. The next circle out, 150. Uh, that's who comes to one of your kids' weddings, that kind of things. Uh, and then, actually, did you know that the human mind apparently is able to remember up to 5,000 faces? You may not be able to put a name to that face, but you'd know I uh, recognize that person. I, I found this, uh, this idea, this image of concentric circles, a really helpful way of calibrating our love expectations. So what I want to think about today is, is calibrating, putting, giving aim to who we're supposed to love and, if you like, how much love we're supposed to give them. And I think the Bible uses a very similar framework to this concentric circle idea when it comes to love and, in particular, who we're supposed to love. We love because he first loved us. That's the Bible, that's true. We know that is true. We love because he first loved us. But who do we love in particular? Who should we love in particular? We know we need to love one another. We know we need to love the lost. We know we need to love the weak. Uh, we know we need to even love our enemies. But which ones? <laughs> which ones specifically? Are we to equally love all the lost 
every enemy of the gospel in Toronto, every weak person in Canada, every human in the world. At some point, we have to acknowledge our limited capacity. If, if we're dealing with a biblical definition of love, then we soon realize we can't actually love every human soul on the planet. Only the infinite God has the capacity to love everybody. Unlike that character, Lila, from the uh, 19, I think it was 1942 film, Holiday Inn, if you saw that film, uh, Lila is engaged to the Bing Crosby character, and she's breaking off the engagement to get engaged with the Fred Astaire character, and she says this, well, don't be upset, Jim dear. It isn't that I don't love you. I do. I love everybody. (laughs) Well, Lila, dear, no, you don't. (laughs) Only the infinite God has the capacity to love everybody. So if that is true, how do you and I go about actually loving anybody? Where do we start? How do we not get paralyzed by the massive scope of need in the world and end up loving nobody? How do we guard ourselves from loving these people over here when in reality we should be prioritizing these people over there? And how do we even decide which is who? So that takes us back to this idea of concentric circles. I think you find in the Bible this this sort of movement outward in this series of concentric or nesting circles. And the basic idea is that we need to be loving the humans that are right in front of our nose. If you get anything out of this particular message, let it be that. Love the people that are right in front of you. And then we move outward from there in these spheres of lessening relational and geographical proximity and we love just whoever comes next. So this is my attempt for you uh, to, by Scripture and by prudence, to help you organize in your own mind the who comes next. Who should I be loving? Where does it start? Well, here's number one. If you've got a spouse, love them. <laughs> love your spouse if you've got one. So this is Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or as Paul wrote to Titus, older women, are likewise to, are like, older women likewise are to train the young women to love their husbands. So husbands are required by God to love their wives. Wives are required by God to love their husbands. The marriage of one man to one woman begins this lifelong contract of love between those two people. And that relationship is unique It is unlike any other relationship, and that is why it takes priority. It's really clear when Paul quotes Genesis 2 later on in Ephesians 5. If you're still there in Ephesians, look down Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, here's the Old Testament quote, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the separation from one's family of origin, the the leaving in order to prioritize the new family of the married couple, the cleaving, that demonstrates that the marriage union takes priority. Since it's a relationship based on commitment to love one another, then it only follows that if you're married, the first person you need to worry about loving is your spouse. Love for spouse even trumps love for parent. 
Now, I say this because I, I want us to be careful in our thinking. Don't, don't be thinking you're acting all Christian, loving the kids in your outreach ministry when you're giving your wife the silent treatment at home. You've jumped circles. You need to get first things first. Now, if you're single, you can, in the words of the apostle in 1 Corinthians 7, focus more exactly on loving God himself. You're allowed to increase focus and attention on your love for God. But you're not off the hook when it comes to the rest of your family. For both you and the married ones need to expand that circle out to the next one, which is love your immediate family. And I take you here to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul here is talking about widows, and he has something interesting to say. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, that means your your actual family, your blood relations, that person has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul is super clear here. If you've got a widow in your immediate family, you are under a biblical obligation to love her, to provide for her, to care for her because she is in your family. It would be wrong, for example, for, uh, for a person to donate $45,000 a year to a Christian widow house in India while ignoring his own widowed mother. It would be right for him and it would honor God for him to spend that $45,000 honoring and caring for his own mother rather than sending it to those in need in India. There is a prioritization. Now that seems kind of obvious, but have you ever heard of World Vision? World Vision was founded by Bob Pierce in 1950. And it quickly grew into this multi-million dollar uh, organization that aimed at bringing aid to especially children who were in need. It exists today. Pierce, the founder, uh, said on several different occasions, and this is an exact quote, I've made an agreement with God that I will take care of his helpless little lambs overseas if he will take care of mine at home. And the mine at home is his, his own family. And so for the next 20 years, he traveled at least, oftentimes more, 10 months of every year he was gone. He eventually abandoned his family. He divorced his wife. He barely provided for them while he was garnering millions to go overseas. His eldest daughter committed suicide, apparently just out of paternal neglect. Later on in his life, when everything kind of fell apart, Pierce had the audacity to accuse God of not keeping his part of the deal. He said, I expected God to take care of my children as I cared for others. He didn't. Brothers and sisters, Bob Pierce got it wrong. His circles were out of whack. He was out there living in circles five, six, and seven, and he was neglecting circles one and two. He was doing a good work to be sure. He's, he's bringing aid to people that are in dire need. 
But it was wrong for him, it was sin for him to neglect his wife. It was wrong for him, it was sin for him to neglect his own children. His lack of prioritizing his love was sin. His his love for the poor did not in any sense justify his neglect of his own family. If you hate your wife but love the church family, you're out of line. If you neglect your kids but you give all your time and attention to the neighbor's kids, you're, you're skipping circles, you're out of whack. Love starts under your own roof and then it moves outward to those who are related to you by blood and then where does it go? This takes me to circle number three, love your church. What is a church? Not what is the church but What is a church? Not the church as in every person ever saved, both living and now in glory, but what is a church? What is a local church? A local church is an assembly of Christian people who exercise certain rights and responsibilities when they gather together. And the local church, that particular group of people, is distinct from the world and is actually distinct from other local churches too. So I'd have you turn here to Galatians chapter 6, and one of these sort of passing comments Paul makes here, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and then see, look at what comes next, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul is drawing a distinction here. Do good to everybody in the world, but make sure that the the good doing begins in your church, the household of faith, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's very clarifying. It helps us to put some order to things, to prioritize our love. My love for others needs to begin with my spouse if I have one, and then it extends to my immediate family and my extended family, but close behind this is my love for my spiritual family, the people that I have covenanted together with. Now, you see this progression in other places, too. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, and Paul says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So before we get to the general love for all, there needs to be a specific love for the one another. Almost every place is about 40 or so occurrences of one another in the New Testament. Almost without exception, that's referring to the members of your local church. That's who the one another is. And so here in this church in Thessalonica, Paul says, look, you guys, increase and abound in your love for one another. That's my expectation for you. It's my wish for you, my desire for you. And then once you have done this, get to loving everybody else. Abound in love for one another and for all. That's reaffirmed, I think, later in the same letter when you go to chapter 5 and verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Notice the prioritization. Paul's not suggesting in any way that we're excused from loving people outside of our church but he's arguing you must prioritize loving the people of your church. First comes the one another, then comes the everyone. 
Things are off if we're making all kinds of time to uh, attend a, you know, a rally for some cause we believe in and we never show up for a members meeting at our church. Our, our heart loyalties are out of whack. Love begins in the immediate family and it flows then properly outward to the church family. I think loving the church family is something we're going to have to really think about as we're allowed to start gathering again, hopefully, God willing, in a couple of weeks. We're going to have to rediscover that three-syllable word, fellowship, <laughs> and, uh, and figure out how to do all that stuff again. We need to think and pray and creatively work to just kind of boost our mutual love for one another. Why? Because we made a promise. I further engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters, in brotherly love. Why do we love each other? Why do we love anybody? Because we were loved by God first. How do you know that you've been loved by God like this? Because you've repented of your sins and you've put your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, our, our love for each other, we, we make covenant with one another, but every time we read the covenant, what do we think? Ah, I've, I've not done here, not done well here, not done well here. I mean, this is what we are idealizing. This is what we are aiming for. We're, we're not getting to heaven because of our, our great ability to love each other, our great faithfulness and loving God. Our love is sporadic. Our love is glitchy at best. We get to heaven based on God's love for us. That's how anyone gets to heaven. And if you've not turned to God and believed on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you must. You won't get there by loving people better. You will only get there if he loves you. And the way that you find his love is by turning from your sins and putting your trust in his son, Jesus. Once that has taken place, once God has saved you, he sets you on a trajectory of loving other people as you have been loved. That's why John said, we love because we were first loved. And that takes us to our next layer, the next circle, from family to church family now to the whole Christian family. Number four, love other Christians. Listen to how Paul writes about the Christians in Ephesus. For this reason, this is Ephesians 1 in verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. All the saints here, it refers to Christians of other churches. In fact, that word saints, if you just look at how it's used in the New Testament, you'll find that it often, almost exclusively, speaks about Christians from other local churches. And so the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians, had a love for Christians that were outside of the church in Ephesus. And this love that one church had for another church, that was often, if you read through the New Testament, it was often made visible by the sending of help, financial aid, to churches that were in need. And so you get this example in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of, churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. 
So Paul says, yeah, there's a bunch of churches in the district of Galatia that are doing this, and the church there in Corinth, you're doing this too. We're going to come along, and we're going to collect what you've collected, and you'll appoint some delegates, and we'll all go together, and we're going to take this financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. Why the church in Jerusalem? Because there's a famine in Jerusalem, and people can't eat. So Paul is helping other local churches help another local church. I think if you, if you learn to love your own local church, you will want to help and sustain other local churches. You'll want other churches to thrive. The, the more you love your own church, the more you start to love other churches because you know their value, you know they're good. That's one thing I love about this particular church, Grace Fellowship Church, is that we, we are trying to be a church that loves other churches. That's why we freely send pastors and people away to plant and in Markham and downtown and on the east side of the city. It's why we send pastors and people to help get another church that was struggling back up on its feet again. It's why we financially support churches in other parts of the world, in Mozambique and Scotland and India. It's why we get together every Wednesday night and pray. And what are we praying for? We're praying for other churches. We're, we're praying for other pastors. When you learn to love your own local church, you quickly learn to love other local churches as well, other Christians. So that's ring number five. Let's go out to circle number, uh, ring number four. Let's go out to circle number five, love your neighbor. So now we move out of this strictly Christian spheres of responsibility to the world at large, to those people who are in close geographical proximity to us, our neighbors, especially those neighbors who are in need. One blogger wrote this week, and I found it a helpful little thing, we're, we're not made to bear the suffering of the world on our shoulders. Only God can do that. We are made to respond compassionately to the suffering that God has brought into our own sphere of influence. I would just point you back here to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? Well, the person you happened upon who was in need, he's your neighbor. Who am I bound to in love? Anybody God providentially puts across my path with whom has need. I mean, I might feel compassion and sympathy towards suffering, the suffering people after an earthquake in, say, Bolivia, but I have a higher level of responsibility toward the suffering after some natural disaster in Rexdale. And we've already looked at this in depth. I'm not going to go into it more further. Let me take you to the final sixth circle, which is love everyone else. I don't know if you watched this week in the, on the news or read in the news that there was another mass shooting, people killed in San Jose, California. What do, what do you do in your own heart and mind with that kind of news? What are you supposed to do? How do you love the people that were affected by that shooting? The families of the deceased, the, the witnesses of the crime, the, the wounded. It's, it's just here where I think there's actually very little you can do in order to tangibly love those dear people. I mean, perhaps you would send money to a charity if that's something you would want to do. Most certainly you can pray. But I don't believe the Lord expects us to love with the same kind of intentionality and sacrifice to those people that are suffering far away from us as if 
he would, um, if something horrible happened in, in our city, in our neighborhood, or God forbid, even in our church. There's, there's something about living in our day when you have a 24-hour news cycle and massive amounts of social media. It can distort a person's sense of responsibility, their sense of space. And, and, and when that happens, you can begin to improperly prioritize. You, you love the victims of a shooting far away, but you're not loving your own family. Or you can become almost imperceptibly paralyzed and you're loving nobody in particular because you're overwhelmed by need everywhere and it's kind of like, well, I don't know where to start. Neither of those is a good option. But this is where I think truth and prudence and providence can guide us. When you were born into that family, it was predetermined who you were going to have to love. When you married that man, you promised who you were going to love. When you became a member of this church, you chose the people that you were going to love. You live in this city. You can see your neighbor. You know who you need to love. So don't get fooled and don't get flummoxed. Don't get stopped in your tracks. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, it is easier to be enthusiastic about loving humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. (laughs) Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. So, we have looked at what love is. I've tried to show you what God requires, and now I have laid out for you these concentric circles, like circles on a dartboard. Start in the middle and work your way out. All that remains for you and I is to do it, to actually love other people, and we can do it because God is always for what God commands, and He will always give grace to do what He commands. So God will help us. Amen. May he make it so.